Well, some weeks ago, when we had 1 Timothy open, we looked at the opening verses of chapter 3, and there we saw that Jesus gives elders as a gift to his church. Elders are gifted by Christ for the ministry of pastoral care. Jesus gives gifts to them. Jesus then gives them to us, and we are honored to receive them, not in and of themselves, but we are honored to receive them as gifts from our Lord, meant for our blessing and for our benefit. This morning we turn to the other regular office in the church. This office here, in the, in the same breath, in the same chapter, discussed side by side by the Apostle Paul. Deacons, too, are a gift of Christ to his church. Now, after the morning service early, uh, earlier, someone accused me, uh, or they asked creatively, so was there any correlation between the topic of the sermon today and the Saturday workday? Was there some uh, connection between those two? And I was able to say only in the strange providence of God. Deacons also are a gift of Christ to his church. Jesus gives them unique gifts and a unique calling, and we are blessed to receive that precious gift. Again, it's not about the man, it's not about them, it's about Christ, and it's about the gifts that he blesses his church with through them, and to be blunt, as of elders and deacons, of ministers, of pastors and ruling elders and deacons, in spite of us, the Lord blesses his church. In Acts chapter 6, we could go back and we could see that deacons, the diaconate as a group, grew out of the apostolate. That is, in Acts 6, the apostles, uh, they are caring for the church, they're busy with the ministry of the word and prayer, and this burden comes upon because they're such a weight of converts. The Lord and His providence moves, and, and they are pressed upon with practical matters the waiting of tables, and so, led by the Spirit, they call for the people of God to to look and examine and find those qualified to handle this pressing and important matter. It must be handled practically but spiritually under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so the diaconate was born. First, there were apostles, the foundation of the church. And then we see in the book of Acts the establishment of the deacons so that the apostles' ministry of the word and prayer would be protected. And this is an ordinary office, unlike the foundation of the church, the apostolate. The extension of the apostles' ministry is, is the work of the elders. That's the ordinary office of preaching and teaching today. And the ordinary office of practical care is that of the diaconate. Therefore, diaconal duties are not just incidental to the life of the church, they're downright important. The life of the whole church is impacted for the good by the gifts that Jesus gives us through the deacons. Their sacrificial service protects the ministry of the word and prayer. And that's vital to the ongoing growth of the church and the well-being of the church and for the gospel to go forth to every tongue and tribe and people and nation. In our passage this morning, Paul lays down qualifications for the office of deacon. And writing to Timothy, who was in the church in Ephesus, uh, continuing to be a sanctifying influence, functioning as an apostolic helper, but also as the pastor of that local church, we hear the apostle say to his understudy, Jesus, Jesus gives us deacons. They're his gift. 
Well, the, the first way that we recognize or that we see that Jesus gives us a deacon is that Jesus gives certain external qualifications to a deacon. And that's what hits us right at the beginning in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified. And then there's a whole list of ways in which particularly uh, dignity is being highlighted. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and etc. These are external qualities, and it begins with the broad-brush umbrella concept of deacons being men of dignity. What is a man of dignity? Well, a man of dignity is one who is seen and is felt by the people to be one dignified. You know, I was uh, telling some folks yesterday as we were screwing and unscrewing the chairs that hold up the seat on which you are now seated. Uh, all of them here in the sanctuary were changed. There's now a, there's now a little um, uh, locking washer, and that means that you won't fall out of your chair this morning. See, God blesses you with deacons. But I was mentioning to some that my, many years ago my father said to me, Son, I have good news and bad news. Which do you want first? And I said, well, Dad, give me the good news. And he said, there's practical aptitude in our family, son. And then he smiled. And I said, what's the bad news? And he said, it skips generations. <laughs> I said, Dad, are you trying to tell me something? He said, you know, my father could not, he could not hammer a nail straight and he could not turn a screw. And I said, well, you know, your dad died. I never knew him. He died when you were young. He said, well, just look at your Uncle Reed. And I thought for a moment, and I shook my head, and I said, I'm in trouble, aren't I? <laughs> Uncle Reed was a great guy. He was an officer in the Presbyterian church. He loved the Lord. He was a pastor's best friend. You know, no matter how good or bad the sermon, he could not get through the sermon without crying. Oh, it's wonderful, that kind of encouragement. Uh, he was a man who, when he walked around Big Stone Gap, Virginia, that great thriving metropolis there at the point, mountain point edge of Virginia, when he walked around town, everybody said, now there's a dignified man. He was a gentleman. And that's what it is to be a man of dignity. The people recognize, they spontaneously smile, and, and they nod their heads, and they say, yes, there's a man of dignity. That's something that the people recognize in them. Uncle Reed was, was a man who had that. And that is what the Apostle Paul here tells Timothy to look for in Ephesus. That's what the people should be valuing. Dignity. It's a general observation. But then we have a whole series of specifics that inescapably undergird and support that concept. Deacons must, be like, must likewise be dignified, not double-tongued, nor addicted to much wine. Uh, deacons are here said not to be talkers. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be shy, reclusive, and unable to carry on social conversation. I am happy to report to you that your deacons chattered thoroughly in fellowship one with another while they were screwing in and screwing out screws yesterday in the sanctuary. Uh, while there were... Uh, Pansies being planted, deacons were talking. They were fellowshipping together. Uh, while there was repair going on of gates and the washing of windows and the cleaning of the grounds, all of these things involved fellowship together. There were deacons sprinkled among all the people that were gathered and they were carrying on a leadership function and so they were communicating. 
But Paul's point is, is that they must communicate in a good way. Not double-tongued. You see, a, a double-tongue, a, a fast tongue, has destroyed many a life, hasn't it? We might not harm a fly, but you know we sure would like to talk about it a little bit. In small towns and in small lives, quick lips can be the main form of entertainment and destruction. Our rule, according to the Apostle Paul, must be in selecting deacons first to do no harm. And that means not having as a deacon someone who hurts another with their words. Oh, this sets quite a standard to be dignified. You must not be double-tongued and say one thing to one person and another to another. Flattery and, and backbiting and backstabbing, these kinds of sins of the tongue should not be known among the diaconate. And there are sins that are in plenty abundance in the world. Have you read the little epistle to, of James to the church generally? There he identifies the tongue as such a massively important and all-controlling instrument that can turn our lives one way or another. Someone who can control their tongue has enormous control over their life and their godliness And in truth, we have to admit here at the beginning of the list of these dignified things that every deacon needs to hold up their hands and say, I am a sinner, but yet I'm a sinner who's washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is a broad and general and public thing that Paul is pointing to in the deacons. They must not be double-tongued. And then he goes on and says, nor should they be addicted to much wine. What Paul is saying here is they can't be silly on themselves. Often, you know, the last person in town to know that they have a problem with drink is that person. Paul is not here condemning wine per se. Uh, We're going to turn just two chapters over, and what's Paul going to say? Timothy, you're having stomach problems. You make sure you take a little wine. And we have to be careful. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... He made wine at the Canaan wedding early in his ministry. And he also took the cup, the wine cup, from the Passover ceremony that had been given of old, and he transformed it into being the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And so we're not trying to argue here that wine is wicked in itself. What Paul is emphasizing is that too much drink shatters and strains a life and makes it unable for them to care and minister more broadly in the church. The deacons are not to be hooked on such things. Be patient with me as I digress in an example. Many years ago in another state, in another time, I accepted a call to a pulpit, and in just a few days I discovered that I had inherited systemic child sexual abuse that happened on the previous man's watch. It was one of those shocking and heartbreaking and disorienting things to encounter in a congregation. And as we were trying to deal with this, I kept, I kept bumping up against great resistance and difficulty. For you see, I had an elder on my session that I, I didn't really know yet. I, something struck me as very odd. You see, he came to church and his wife didn't come. And I, for all I tried, I couldn't meet her. She would not come even though she was on the roll of the church. And then one day, in a strange providence of God, I discovered that 
He had a drink problem and an arrest record, and no wonder we couldn't get background checks done. It was just heartbreaking. And so because the church had this very strange habit, uh, they had a bulletin board, and they had a lot of readers. That is, the bulletin board was the place set apart for all the minutes of the session to go, and they put them up with a thumbtack. And there were literally dozens of people in the church who went and read every word and every syllable. It was a little too much zealous interest in such things. And in dealing with this matter, according to the laws of the state, there were all these minutes up that said, we opened with prayer for a session meeting, we took this, went into executive session, took action that we wouldn't specify, and then we closed with prayer. And after you get a bulletin board full of these, people begin thinking, what's going on? Well, we were handling a very delicate matter. And so when the elder came forward and confessed his sin, we had to deal in very public fashion, as outlined in Timothy 5. And so that man had to receive the support and encouragement of the session to try to bring him back into proper order, but, but it was something the congregation had to know. Uh, this had an unintended and unknown effect in the life of a deacon. A deacon was shaken to the core, for you see, uh, he had suffered under the ravages of alcohol for nearly 50 years. And it scared him to death. And God did a great work of grace in his heart. And he came to profess his sin and to seek aid and help. And he came to a point in his life where God, by his grace, gave him sobriety. And his wife became the happiest woman in the whole USA. It was a glorious thing to watch. Both of them beaming him giving testimony and thanking God for his work and his heart and life. It was an honor to the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My point is simply this. I have seen firsthand how ministry in the life of the church becomes debilitated in that kind of context. And so I understand per, from the inside out how the Apostle Paul says that a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Too much drink means that you can't serve in the church effectively. And deacons also are said to be those not greedy for dishonest gain. Now here we're zeroing more closely on the center target of what diaconal concern is to be. The deacons are to care for practical things in the church. They're to practically minister to others. To use the language of Acts 6, they wait on tables. They handle money. They meet needs in the lives of people who are hungry in the life of the church. And they must not be fond of improper or sordid gain. Paul here is calling for fair, for honest, for even-dealing deacons. They must be concerned more with the welfare of other people than with themselves. And it's just not right to make a selfish man a deacon. He will be too mean on the people and not care for them holistically as he should what God forbids, we must not make the mistake of doing. A deacon must not be fond of sordid gain. And then there's a spiritual dimension which is clearly emphasized. We read uh, in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And this is a parallel thing to the list of qualifications for the eldership. There we read that an elder must be apt to teach, able to teach the faith. And here a deacon is said not to be one who teaches, but one who holds. Holds firmly, holds personally, 
holds on to the Christian faith. And that they must do so with a clear conscience. It's not that they're saying that they do, but yet they don't. They, in their living, must be seen by themselves and by others to be confirming their profession of faith in Jesus rather than to contradict it. And so deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then finally, an outward sort of test that can be seen and measured and timed and noticed is said to be that they pass the test. And let them also, verse 10, be tested first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, that doesn't mean that this morning we're going to have a pop quiz and you're to take out a number two lead pencil and be ready to fill in the blanks that then go in the scantron. No, deacons are tested in the providence of God in various ways. If Christ has has gifted someone with the gifts to be of practical help and aid in the life of the church in this formal way, then there will be some tests. Perhaps the elders will set the test. Uh, Perhaps the pastoral staff will will set a test kind of quietly to see whether there's a real practical use. How do you tell whether someone has gifts? It's in the doing. The, The proof of the pudding is what? It's in the tasting. And so the proof of the gifts is in their using. Oftentimes it's a test that's in the providence of God himself. That something happens and and many are needed like there's a work day and and you know the chairs are falling apart and the, the bolts are falling on the floor and we need to put those back in with the proper equipment so that this will never happen again. And, and you know a man who's gifted to be a deacon, uh, he shows up and his electric drill is ready and it's fully charged. They pass the test. Deacons are kid tested. Their mother approved. And sometimes the man himself is the last one to know. What? Me, a deacon? Yes, well it looks that way to us. You need to pray about it. You know, sometimes the man is the last to know. Have I told you all the story? Yes, I think I did once when we had a missionary visiting that um, our downstairs neighbor at, uh, at RTS in Jackson, uh, we got into something of a kidding little thing back and forth with a whole room full of people at a party, and I, I made some offhanded, very positive, sanctifying comment about how his hairline was receding, and, and he, he said to me, well, you're one to talk. And I said, back, what are you talking about? And he said you don't know, do you? And I said, what, what are you referring to? And, and he took me in the bathroom, and with two mirrors, I saw that I had a bald spot that had appeared. Everyone knew except for me. I was the last to know. And so I did the only rational thing. I screamed at the top of my lungs. <laughs> Deacons pass the test. Sometimes, sometimes the man himself is the last to know. Oh, let me, let me be clear, in these external matters, you see, these are ones that Paul is laying down. This, this list does not necessarily uh, uh, profess to be exhaustive. For you see, these kinds of things are something that are true in, in the, uh, uh, of the calling of every Christian. We're to be dignified as believers, we're not to be double-tongued, we're not to be drunkards, we're not to be greedy, we're not to be dishonest, we're to hold the faith. These are Christian things. Uh, we are to help, we are to serve. All of these external qualities are things that we should all seek and we should cultivate in one another's lives. And let me also say that that sometimes the church is blind. Sometimes the church simply does not see what is right there in front of their face, that there is one who is gifted and therefore called by Christ. You know, it's like uh, hearing music. 
Sometimes someone in my family will play music that I don't like, and so what do I do? Well, I put my fingers in my ears, and you know, if you jam them in hard enough, then you don't hear a thing. It's only the sound of your own heart beating and of your fingers swelling, and it's difficult to get the fingers out of the ear. Self-inflicted pain by a congregation sometimes happens by a lack of sensitivity to the gifts that Christ has given. And that in and of itself is something of a test because then we have to look at the Lord and His providence and we bear up under frustration. And the Lord may have better and greater things for us in that because that itself is a test we pass by looking to His grace. Jesus gives external gifts that can be seen and measured and noticed. In the next verse, he tells us that he gives something else which is clear, which is a gender distinction. Now, this is, this is very difficult in our day and age. Uh, uh, there was no difficulty in the Ephesian church, I can guarantee you, by studying the history of it. But, but in our day and age, we don't even like to acknowledge that there's gender distinction. God bless the Supreme Court. They need his help. They don't seem to notice as do other scholars not notice. But here the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Jesus gives a gender distinction. Now, the translation in front of us, uh, the ESV, which we use, is very helpful. It's already interpreted what in the Greek are fairly uh, more vague uh, language. We read, Their wives, verse 11, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. What first jumps off the page at us is that the list of qualifications for a deacon's wife is really very similar to the list of qualifications for an elder. Dignified. Deacons must be dignified. A deacon's wife must be dignified. Not slanderers. Wow, not double-tongued. Hmm. Sober-minded. Not addicted to much wine. Hmm. Faithful in all things, not greedy for dishonest gain. There, there are real parallels there, and we should affirm that. But the language itself just says the women. It's a very general term, and in and of itself, all by itself, we're left with, left with three possibilities. The first is, we have to admit, women deacons. That is a grammatical possibility if you're just looking at the term. And, of course, you're not just looking at the term. It appears in a sentence. It appears in a paragraph. It appears in a book. It appears in a, in a, in a Bible. And, therefore, we have to interpret in it in the concentric circles of where it falls. But the term can mean women deacons. It can mean women who are helpers of deacons. And that's a, a very important concept. Uh, it's one that's even recognized in our own PCA Book of Church Order. Did you know that um, there are some things your husband can't do that he's all thumbs at, and there's some things that uh, deacons can't do they're all thumbs at, it seems. Um, and so in some matters related to women and children, especially, our, our Book of Church Order says, the deacons and the elders, they may have need of, of helpers to help them with these things. There's some matters that it would be a scandal for the deacons to go and talk to a woman about, but, but maybe a, a woman who's helping the deacons, a Uh, She can do that, perhaps also a deacon's wife. I think the translation has it right here. For you see, Paul's language can't mean women deacons. That's highly improbable because the next verse says what? Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. And that's just not possible upon that reading. And if it's women helpers, then it would have to be women on the list who are mentioned over in chapter 5. And and you've got to wait another month or two before we get to that. So... uh, Uh, There's no use even thinking about that possibility. 
but the wives of deacons because of the personal qualities and the family habits which are next mentioned is obviously what Paul is referring to. You could have tapped Aunt Timothy on the shoulder or anyone in the Ephesian church and that would be the natural and plain reading of the text that they would come to. But whatever the case, what is being highlighted here is the importance of ministry by and for women. They're not second-class citizens in the church. They have a very important role to play. And that role is so important that if they're married to a deacon, it's an especially important aspect. But if we have external qualities, even including a gender distinction that we can see, what about the things that we can't see? What about someone's life on the inside? Now that is a tough nut to crack. True confessions. Many years ago when I was a teenager, I had made a profession of faith in Christ. I was very zealous for the things of God. I, I had a few wonky ideas, and one of them was that if you stared at someone long enough and hard enough, and if they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you could see that halo above their head. And that was a clever idea until I, uh, until I noticed the high correlation between halos over people's heads and eye strain. And then I realized that that was just a silly idea. The point here is, is that you can't look on the outside and see what's on the inside necessarily. Sometimes the one that has the best or the most lipstick on them is actually a pig. Pig in a poke is what you're buying and and so how do you get to the heart of the matter? If Jesus, if God alone can see the inside, and God alone knows the heart of the man, you can't even ask the man, is your heart good? Self-knowledge is not always the best kind of knowledge. So where do you look? And Paul begins showing us another facet of life to examine. He says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, verse 12, managing their children and their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We are told to look approximately for the things on the inside by looking in the mirror of the family, in the face of the family. In that family mirror, we will gain some information or discernment about what's happening on the inside. We, we don't know infallibly, but we can, by examining that quadrant of a man's life, we can know whether he has that inward qualification. Paul says he must be a one-woman man, and that means that piety brings propriety, that a deacon must not chase skirts, he must be a man faithful to his wife. And they must be good managers of their children. Uh, the language here is not older children who uh, uh, have grown up and they've moved off or, or they're off uh, doing their own thing or have their own families. This is the little ones that you have at home. You must manage them well. A deacon's home is not to be inherently chaotic. Chaos is something that indicates a lack of wisdom on the one hand or a great and pressing need on the other. And and in the case of a home where there's great need, there is great need for the gifts that Christ has given. It would be a cosmic crime for the church, or even for Christ's church, to take a man away from his family where there's special need. But a deacon, 
must be one who manages his household well. He has to manage his family. He has to manage his time so that he has time to take from them and to give to others in the church. They have to look after their own affairs efficiently. Good managers exercise the wisdom at home that's also needed in the life of the church. Well, looking externally, thinking about calling in relationship to gender, and then looking at the approximation of the internal in the mirror of the family. That is what Paul lays out for us in this passage. And he punctuates it at the end by taking us back to Jesus and to the core of the Christian faith. He speaks personally to the Ephesian church. He says, I want to come back to you, Timothy. I want to come back to the church in Ephesus. I want to minister with you, but in case I can't come, in case I'm delayed, here's how the household of faith should operate. And then he ends with this little rhythmic, poetic, confessional statement. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He puts the period at the end of the qualification of officers by talking not about men, but about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Deacons are to be busy doing. They're the practical gift of Jesus. They must be part of the doing church, not just the hearing church. They must lead by example. Their service undergirds and supports the ministry of the word. But you know, that kind of interest is not only to be done by the deacons. I am happy to report to you that we had men, women, and children. We had deacons and non-deacons, men, women, and children all here yesterday working on workday, helping to help build up the basic fabric of the church so that the ministry of the Word could go forward for another year. That's a blessing of God, and it's a blessing through a whole variety of members. Your senior pastor did not get to do plumbing, but he did an excellent job with an electric screwdriver. Your associate pastor, he really doesn't know how to do any plumbing, whether in America or in Africa. And, but you know, you get the hang of, uh, of which way to make that screw go, and you can uh, be of some use, practical in the life of the church. God used all of us for the good and blessing and benefit, not of a building for a building's sake, but for the blessing and benefit of the building for the sake of the gospel as it goes forth here. If it weren't for them screwing the screws back in right, you would be on the floor just now. And the gospel would not go forth in power. And so about deacons, we ask these practical questions. Do they enable? Do they enhance the ministry of the word and prayer? Do they encourage or discourage the members in such good doing? Do they complement the truth by their labor or do they clash against it? Do they honor or do they embarrass the worship of God in carrying out their duties? Oh, we do well to recognize that every gift diaconal that Christ gives to his church is something that alone comes from him and for which we give him glory. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, we do ask 
that you might get the glory in all the practical work in the life of your church. Bless your people at Christ Church, we pray, that your gospel might go forth in power. In Jesus' name, amen.